We start a new series this morning. I wanna, I've called it Life Hacks. Um, every year when we uh, start off the year, I always like to start off the year with uh, practical ways uh, that we can grow in our walk with God. A life hack, as defined by Wikipedia, is anything that solves an everyday problem in an inspired and ingenious way. So maybe you need to separate an egg, or maybe you need to get scratches off a CD. I've actually had to use that one before. Uh, My kids uh, love to pass me the CDs in the car, which is great at times, and at times it means I get a very scratched CD. I didn't use the banana thing. I'll, I'll have to try that one. I used toothpaste. Um, which kind of worked, but was a little weird at the same time when Wendy came downstairs and I had CDs everywhere covered in toothpaste. Uh, Looked a little strange, but got most of the scratches off. But finding uncommon solutions to common problems is another way of defining a life hack. And I think in our spiritual life, there are also maybe spiritual life hacks, if I can use that term, ways to get where we want to go, ways to find solutions to problems that face us uh, that are readily available, that we all have at our disposal, that are accessible to us and can get us to the solution we want to go to. In our spiritual life, at the beginning of a new year, at the beginning of 2015, I often think that the question we should be asking is, how can I next year, January of 2016, be sure that I have grown spiritually from where I am right now in January 2015. How can I know that as I start the next year, 2016, that I will have grown closer to God, that I will have uh, grown more like my Lord Jesus, that I will have grown in my walk with him this year so that next year that I'm in a place where I am closer to God. The Bible says we're constantly supposed to be growing more like Jesus. We're constantly supposed to be growing in our faith. So how can I make sure that next year I'll be, have grown in my walk more than I am where I am right now? And that's what we talk about here at the beginning of the year. And so maybe there's some spiritual life hacks that you'll pick up in these next few weeks of how you can be closer to God in January of 2016 than you are right now. This morning's spiritual life hack, I want us to look at uncommon solution to common problems. The common problem of how to grow closer to God we're going to look at is the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible. Um, And I want to talk about that this morning. Like many helpful items in your home, it may sit on a shelf in your home. Uh, It may not be opened very often, and if that's the case for you, maybe it's not the case for you, but if that's the case for you, a little bit later, I'm going to tell you why you don't read your Bible. Uh, I think I've got a pretty good idea of why you don't read your Bible. So if that's you, and you're saying, yeah, looking back on 2014, uh, you know, I didn't read my Bible all that much. I didn't get into God's Word all that much. I think I know why. And I will tell you why in just a few moments. But let's look, first of all, of why it's important, why the scriptures, why this book is important to you. Maybe you have it in your phone or your tablet. You're going to click over right now to Psalm 19. Or maybe you have your paper copy. I hope you at least have one paper copy. Even if you have and more rely on your electronic versions, um, the paper copies certainly are valuable, I think, for one reason Uh, if for no other, is that when you mark it and make notes, 
and perhaps you pass that on to someone else, or perhaps you just look back yourself through things that the Lord has spoken to you. You can see places where the Lord has spoken to you and ministered to you through the years. But Psalm 19 this morning, looking at the importance of the Word of God, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then jump down to verses 12 through 14. This is what Psalm 19 says. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. That's verses 1 through 6. Jumping down to verse 12, it says, Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let me just take those two parts of this psalm for a moment. The beginning of this psalm clearly states the fact that creation declares, declares the existence and the power of God. The argument is not a hard one to follow. That if you or I would just take a moment to look around us at the heavens at night, at the stars, at the moon, at everything you can see, or during the day, if we just take a moment to watch the sun rise, to watch it set, to look around us at the beauty of creation, that it is undeniable that there is a creator. That if uh, the scriptures are saying, Psalm 19 is saying that anyone who looks around would see that some kind of God, some kind of deity, some kind of powerful being had to create this. That it is too beautiful and complicated to come about by chance and yet too immense and wonderful to have been brought about by humanity. So there must be something, someone else outside of us and the psalmist is saying it doesn't take much to see the existence of God if you will just take a moment to look at the creator. Like the old argument goes, if you walk along the side of the road and you find a watch, you wouldn't assume that it just came together by accident and by chance, but would assume that at some place there was a watchmaker who made the watch. The same argument can be made looking at creation to say, look, there must be a creator. And that's what Psalm 19 is saying at the beginning of this psalm. It's not a, uh, a new argument. Uh, it is something that men and women throughout history have realized Sir Isaac Newton uh, put it this way from a scientist perspective. He said this, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as the Lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord God. Isaac Newton saying, looking around, look at the sun, look at the stars, and you can see that there is a creator. 
Others have noticed it as well, even in our day. Uh, one author uh, you may have heard of, a man named Stephen King, um, who has written many books, and you may not think is one that will be quoted on uh, his knowledge or understanding of God. I don't know where Stephen King stands in his relationship to God, but I do know some of his thoughts that he shared in an interview in 2013 with NPR's Terry Gross when he was asked about God and his understanding. Sometimes you may look at someone like Stephen King and you might say, well, what wisdom can be found there? Even Stephen King can see around him the power of God because the creation testifies to it. He says this. Uh, the question was, so you've always believed in God, you were just bored with church. And King's reply was this. It's certainly a subject that's interested me and I think it interests me more uh, the older I get. And I think we'd all like to believe that after we shuffle off this mortal coil that there's going to be something on the other side. Because for most of us, I know for me, life is so rich, so colorful and sensual and full of good things, things to read, things to eat, things to watch, places to go, new experiences that I don't want to think that you just go into darkness. I choose to believe in God. There's no downside to that. If you say, well, okay, I don't believe in God. There's no evidence of God. Then... You're missing the stars in the sky. You're missing the sunrises and sunsets. You're missing the fact that the bees pollinate all these crops and keep us alive in the way that everything seems to work together. Everything is sort of built in a way that to me suggests intelligent design. He goes on to say, but at the same time, there's a lot of things in life where you say to yourself, well, this, if this is God's plan, it's very peculiar. And you have to wonder about the guy's personality, the big guy's personality. What I'm saying now is I choose to believe in God, but I have serious doubts. Psalm 19, Stephen King's words sound a lot like the psalmist in Psalm 19, that you can look around and you can see that creation itself attests to a creator. That you can look around and you can see it, whether you believe in God, whether you're a Christian, whether you uh, are, are following uh, Jesus Christ, it doesn't take that to look around at the creation and say, there's a God. That God created this. There has to be a being out there that created this. You don't have to be a Christian to see that is the case. And yet at the same time, if all you have is the creation, if all you have is to look around at what you see, and you may end up in a place like Stephen King seems to be where he says, but I have serious doubts. Because when you look at creation, you could say, yes, there is a creator, but what is this creator like? Some might say, well, the world is so good and there's so many good things in it that he must be good. But others might say, but there's so much inequity. There's so much injustice. There's so much pain. There's so much evil. But how can you say that God is good? At the end of this psalm, Psalm 19, verses 12 through 14, the words I got to say, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Make no mistake about it that there is a huge intellectual and theological jump from verses 1 through 6 to verses 12 through 14. To go from the place of saying there must be a God, there must be a creator, there must be someone who designed this, to the place at the end of this psalm to saying there's a God who forgives me, 
There's a God who hears me when I speak. There's a God who listens when I pray. There's a God who's good and loving that I desire to please with the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart is a huge intellectual jump. And it's one that many people don't make. They might say, yes, there's a creator, but I don't know what he's like. They might say, yes, someone had to design all this, but I don't know if he's good or bad. I don't know if he's benevolent or malevolent. I don't know if he cares that I exist. I don't know if he cares that anyone exists. There's a huge intellectual and theological jump that goes from the knowledge of a creator to talking to that creator, believing that he hears, believing that he has your best interest at heart, and wanting to please him. And into that gap, the only thing I believe that fills that gap is this word of God. The only thing that plugs the gap between God the creator and God I want to please and live my life for is the God revealed to us in the Bible and in scripture. And in fact, that's what Psalm 19 says as David writes. Let's fill in the blanks between verses 6 and 12 and read verses 7 through 11. And this is what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Verses 7 through 11 are completely wrapped around this idea of the only thing that fills this gap between the fact that there's a creator and how I am to live in relation to this creator is the word of God. And the reality is that the only reason we have any knowledge about who God is and what he is like and what he asks of us is because he's revealed himself to us and that revelation is recorded for us in the pages of this book. There is no, you can look around at creation and see generally who God is, but you cannot know specifically who he is. Truth of the matter is, this is the only way that we know who God is and what he is like. The Bible is your only connection to knowing who God is and what he is like and what he expects of you and how he has designed life to be lived. <clears throat> so David praises the word of God because without it, he and we are completely lost. And so he says the, the instructions are wonderful. He says, you know, the, the ordinances are great. He talks about and proclaims the blessings of the word of God. I don't know when the last time you wrote a poem about the Bible, but David wrote a lot of them because the word of God was such a blessing to him that he realized that without it, his connection to God was lost. If you want to grow in your walk with God in 2015, if you want knowledge and understanding, David says it makes wise the simple. Do you want to be closer to God? Do you want to be wiser and more like God? Do you want to be more joyful? There's no other way 
that I know of than spending time in his word, listening to him. Great theological writer of the early church, Augustine said, when thou prayest, thou speakest with God. When thou readest the scriptures, God speaks with thee. We pray often and we speak with God, but when we sit under the scriptures, we listen to God as he speaks with us. Spurgeon, uh, 19th century pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, said he is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. So look at creation and look what it proclaims about God, but then look at the Bible and the word of God and see what it says specifically about God and recognize that God is the author of them both. God is the author of creation. God is the author of the scriptures and he is revealing himself to you. The Bible is nothing more and nothing less than God revealing himself to us through word and history. It's how we know him, how we know us, and how we know how to live for him. So the Bible is important. The Bible is significant. Without it, we have no knowledge of God and who he is and what he's like. But too often, the Bible, like many of our other books, just sit on the shelves with the other books in our homes. Or it just sits on your screen like the other apps on your screen. You used to play Candy Crush once, but you're bored with it now. And the Bible sits as an app on the screen just like any other. Perhaps the format itself, being a book bound in a cover, allows it to sit on a shelf as if it were no different than volumes by Shakespeare or Twain or Grisham or insert your favorite author here. Look, I like books as much as the next person. That's not true. I probably like books more than the next person. I have and like books. I like the look of books. I like them on my shelves. I like them piled in my house. I have them piled up and more books than I can possibly read at one time are on my nightstand and my tables and everything else. I like books. I like the sound of a new book as you break the binding and open it against its will for the first time. I like the look of the colorful covers on the shelf. I like to walk around and spend all day in Barnes and Noble or Staples or any place that has supplies and books and paper and anything. That's a great day for me. I like the feel of a quality page in my hand as I'm turning it. I like the smell of books. Those of you that know me best know that I have this quirk, I'll call it, of smelling books. Uh, I, I, I will read and continue to read a book because it smells good. I have my favorite ink of my Christian publishers. IVP is one of my favorites. Tyndale is at the top. I just like the smell of their ink. I like books. I like, I like having them. I like reading them. But, but even the statement, if you think about it, I like books, is kind of a silly statement, isn't it? I mean, it's very broad to say, I like books. Because what is a book but a container? 
I mean, to say I like books is kind of like saying I like Ziploc bags, or I like Tupperware, or I like boxes. I mean, they're just containers for other things. And books are as diverse as the people who write them and the ideas that might come out of someone's head. So to say I like books is kind of a silly statement. But sometimes we think of books in that way that they're all the same. They just kind of sit on the shelf. And maybe that's the reason that the Bible kind of sits on our shelf because it's just like all the other books. The book is not the point. The point is the content, the ideas that are contained within the book. Having a book on a shelf does not change you any more than having a Ziploc container filled with delicious food satisfies your appetites. Right? Having a book on your shelf does not change you any more than having a Ziploc container filled with delicious food satisfies your appetite. And yet they often sit on the shelf and the Bible itself often sits on the shelf. But many people who, in fact, would even profess to be Christians don't read the Bible. Don't read it on any regular basis. If you are here today and you read the Bible on a regular basis, you are in the minority. You are certainly in the minority of the American culture and public. You are in the minority of the American church. I would even say you're probably in the minority of this church. If you pick up and read the Bible on a daily and regular basis... You are in the minority of even those people who would call themselves born-again followers of Jesus. Many people don't. They don't pick it up and they don't read it every day, and yet it's important, and yet not reading it doesn't change us at all. Having one, just having one doesn't change it. Many followers of Jesus will look back on 2014 and realize they hardly cracked the cover of the Bible. In fact, there's still dust from 2013 on it. And if that's you like I promised earlier, I can pretty much tell you why you don't read your Bible. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why you might not, but if you've tried and you're not reading your Bible, there are pretty much, I think, two reasons why you are not reading your Bible. I don't know your devotional time. I don't know your schedule. I don't know your life. I don't know everything that's going on, but I think I can tell you with some degree of certainty why you don't read the Bible. Here's what I believe. You don't read the Bible, and most people that don't read the Bible don't read it because they either think it is irrelevant or uninteresting or probably both. The two reasons people don't read the Bible is because they think it is irrelevant and uninteresting. Because when you read a book, you read relevant books. If you've got a need in your life that you need fixed, you go and try and pick up a book, perhaps, that is going to help you meet that need. Or you go to a website. So you need a job, and you go read a book about finding a job and preparing a resume. You need help with your kids, and you go read a book on parenting. You need to lose weight, you find a book about losing weight. You need help with financial investing. You find a book or someone who writes about financial investing. You need to get organized. You'll read a book about getting organized. You will pick up and read a book that is relevant to your life, whether it's interesting or not. If it's interesting, all the better. But if it's not, you'll trudge through it because you feel it's going to be helpful to you. You will also read a book because it's interesting. 
to buy a book by your favorite author, your favorite fiction writer, or your favorite biographer, and you'll read it because you find it interesting. And you'll read through it and you'll stay in it because it's interesting. It may or may not be particularly relevant to your life. If it is and it supplies something of relevance and importance to your life, great, but it doesn't have to because it's interesting. And we read books that are relevant and interesting to us. If a book is neither relevant nor interesting, it sits on the shelf or it stays in the store doesn't get picked up, it doesn't get read, doesn't get used. Maybe in the case of an emergency, you might pick up the Bible, but on any regular basis, you might not. We live in a world that tailors everything to our tastes. We live in a world that everything is tailored to us so that it is relevant and interesting at the same time. And there are a few things that we will give our money and our time to that are not both relevant and interesting. I heard of a, a new uh, music service. What's well, not a new music service, but a new combination of music service. Some of you may use Spotify. Uh, we, with, we live in a world of Spotify and Pandora. And Spotify, I, I just heard, struck a deal with, uh, with Uber. And now the car service... Uh, that you can schedule a car for. I don't know if it does it now, but in certain cities they're testing it. If you're a Spotify subscriber and you use Uber, you can go to the car, and when you go to the car that you have called and ordered, it'll automatically be playing your music playlist when you walk into the car to taxi you around. We live in a world that a car will not only take you where to go, it'll play music that you want while you're going there. Everything is tailored for you. We live in the world where music, you don't have to turn on the radio and listen to what a DJ chooses to play or a station schedules and listen to their commercials. You could certainly listen to satellite radio and not get the commercials. Or you can listen to something like Pandora. And you could schedule your own music playlist. And you don't have to listen to any songs that you don't like. And there's an algorithm that, that tailors it that once you choose a song, it'll gather other songs that it thinks you like. You like lead guitars? It'll give more songs with lead guitars. You like strong lead vocals? It'll give more of those. You like jazz? You like soft rock? You like hard rock? You like rap? Whatever it is, it'll tailor it completely to you so you never have to listen to anything that is uninteresting or irrelevant to you. And so we bring this same understanding, this same mentality to every part of our life. And why shouldn't we? Everything else around us is tailored to us. And not least of all, we bring it to the Scriptures. And so I would submit that many people do not read the Bible because they find it uninteresting and irrelevant to the life that they are living so it's no wonder when we have this world around us with everything tailored to us and everything saying, don't bother with it if it's hard, if it's uninteresting, if it's irrelevant to you. The reason you often find it uninteresting and irrelevant, if that is the case in your life, if you're honest enough maybe to admit that, is you feel like when you pick up the Bible, you're either reading someone else's mail 
or you're reading a history book about people who lived long ago that you don't relate to and you don't understand. Unless you went into the field of history, most of us couldn't wait to get out of history classes, American history, Western civilization, whatever they were. Most of us couldn't wait to get out of those classes. And sometimes you come to the Bible and you feel like you're either reading a book that was written to someone else or you're reading about people in history that aren't that interesting to you. And so you find it uninteresting and irrelevant. Now somewhere along the line, someone tried to change your perspective of this. A well-meaning Christian friend, a well-meaning pastor on this platform, perhaps tried to change your perspective of this and said, no, 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 no. The Bible is not a book written to someone else and about someone else. The Bible is a book written to you and about you. It's not written to someone else, it's written to you. And it's not written about someone else, it's written about you. And you thought, wow, oh. Well, that's a different perspective. And so you brought that perspective with it and you started reading it again. And you started thinking, well, it's about me and it's for me. And you started reading through that lens and it worked for a while, but then you hit Leviticus. (laughs) Or Ezekiel, or Daniel, or Hebrews. And it stopped feeling like a book about you and for you. And you put it down again. And then some well-meaning Christian or pastor from this platform said, no, no, the Bible, you know, it's God's love letter to you. It's God's instruction book to you. It's God's roadmap, God's GPS, whatever metaphor you choose. And you said, oh, all right, I'll look, I'll go back to it because this is God's instruction and roadmap and GPS and love letter to me and you started reading it and it, and it lasted for a while and you were doing good from January until Valentine's Day but then you hit Ezekiel or Daniel or Leviticus and you stopped it because it stopped feeling like a love letter and it stopped feeling like GPS and it stopped feeling like guidance and it stopped feeling like an instruction manual. And you put it back on the shelf because once again, it felt irrelevant and uninteresting. And there it sits. I think part of the reason that scriptures are not read and why they are believed sometimes to be irrelevant and uninteresting and why they feel like you're reading someone else's mail or about history of people long ago is because we come to the scriptures with false and wrong perspectives. Now it's true. God's book is instruction for us. It's good for us. It's helpful. It gives us direction. It is God's love letter to you. I believe all of that. That's partially true, but just not completely true. The complete truth is this is not a book about you. This is a book about God. That this is not a book about and self-centered, about, about focused on you and right where you are right now in your life. This is a book about God. This is a book that tells us the only things that we know for certain about God. You can look at creation and make some assumptions and make some presumptions and make some guesses and make some thoughts, but the only things we know for sure about God are the things he chose to reveal to us and tell us about himself as recorded in this book. 
And so it's not a book about you. It's a book about God. And if you care anything about knowing anything about God, it has to start and end with this book. If you care anything about knowing what, how, uh, what God requires of us and why he is worth pleasing, it starts and ends with this book. Sermons are great. I'm glad you're here today. I hope you're here next week and often. I hope you have other people you listen to. I hope you have other books you read. But ultimately, all the truth must come from this book if we're talking about God. I remember going to, walking into the seminary library up at Gordon-Conwell for the first time in the biggest theological library I had ever seen. Thousands and tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of books. And the first thing that struck me is they're all books that are somehow related to this book. They're all books that are somehow connected either about or providing reference to this book. Because this is all we know about God. This is where we draw our understanding. This is where we draw our conclusions about who God is and what he is like. We don't read the Bible to please God because some of us get caught up in that. Well, I got to read the Bible because God told me to. I got to read the Bible because the pastor told me to. I got to read the Bible because God wants me to. You don't read the Bible to please God. We read the Bible to find out about the God who is worth pleasing. You don't read the Bible to please God. We read the Bible to learn about, to find out about, to discover the God who is worth pleasing. And that's what we learn about God. The only reason David could come to the end of Psalm 19 and say, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you is because of how God had revealed himself to David through history and through the scriptures. And he said, I want to please that God. I want to live for that God. I want that God to love me and I want to love him and I want every word that comes out of my mouth and every thought that is in my heart to please him. And so you read the Bible to learn and I read the Bible to learn about the God who is worth pleasing. Now all the truth in the world is not in this Bible. All truth is God's truth but he didn't put it all in the Bible. I can flip through these pages and I'm not going to find the Pythagorean theorem, but I believe the Pythagorean theorem is true. But all the truth about God is found in these pages. This is what we have. This is what we know of him. One of my professors in seminary uh, used to say, you know, it's not true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. And this is God's truth about himself and who he is. So yes, it's sometimes hard work to read the scriptures. Yes, it doesn't always seem like it is directly relevant to your day maybe right then, but yes, it all speaks about who God is. And that is relevant to your life and my life. In fact, there is nothing more relevant to your life and my life than knowing who God is what he's like, and what he requires of me. And that's what this book tells me. And so as you enter 2015 and whatever Bible reading plan you might have or whatever schedule you might set out, perhaps even today you'll go home and set out a schedule for being in God's word on a regular basis, whatever that is, I encourage you to bring three questions with you every time you come to the Bible. 
I encourage you to bring three questions to you with you to your reading, and those three questions are this. What does this passage teach me about God? What does it teach me about humanity? And how would God have me live today in light of these truths? Because it's a book about God, and it's a book about his relationship with men and women. So I come to a passage of Scripture and I say, what does it teach me about God? Perhaps it teaches you about the holiness of God. Perhaps it teaches you about the love of God. Perhaps it teaches you about the justice of God. What does it teach me about God? What does it teach me about humanity? Perhaps it reminds me of humanity's fallenness. Perhaps it reminds me that men and women who are given the greatest gifts of God often stray away from his path. Perhaps it reminds me that men and women are fallen. Perhaps it reminds me is that the heart is deceitful above all things. What does it teach me about humanity? And how would God have me live today in light of these truths? And so I come to a passage of Scripture. So this is God's story. God is the hero of every story in Scripture. You may think it's about Joseph or Ruth or Jacob. It's not. It's about God. You may think it's about the Israelites or any of the ites that are in there. It's not. It's about God. Every passage of Scripture you read is teaching you something about who God is and what He is like. So I encourage you in 2015 as you go, if you want to grow with God in 2015, if you want your spiritual walk to be stronger a year from now than it is right now, then find time to spend time regularly in God's Word. How do you do that? In your bulletin, if you want to pull out, there's a, I always give you at least one Bible reading plan at the beginning of the year. So this year, there's one in there. Uh, this year, there's one in there that'll take you through the entire Bible in 12 months. If you've never done that, this is put out by Table Talk, some of R.C. Sproul's uh, ministry, Ligonier Ministries resources. But I, you can go online and all you got to do is Google Bible reading plans or Bible reading charts. And there are any number of them or some of your apps. If you've got the YouVersion app, there's lots of Bible reading plans in the YouVersion app and and other apps that are on there as well. You can schedule your daily Bible reading. So one way to do it is to go through the entire Bible in a year. And if you've never done that, and you're at a place you can handle it, I encourage you to do that. If you've never gone through the entire Bible in a year, I encourage you to do that. If you don't make it through it in a year, fine. Go through the entire Bible in two years. That's okay. There's no rules to this. But that's just one way. If you've never done that, maybe you'll take that way and do that. Or maybe you'll take a portion of Scripture and focus on it. That's what I did this past year. So this past year, my Bible reading was not going through the Bible in a year. This past year, I chose to focus on one section of the Bible, and I chose to focus on uh, the epistles, Romans through Third John. And that was my Bible reading for the year. And my goal was to read through all of the epistles, Romans through Third John, every month. And so that by the end of the year, I will have read through all of these epistles 12 times and read through them and focused on them and spent time in them. Did I do it every month? No, I didn't. I looked back today at the, my, my check marks and I did not make it every month. But did I read through the epistles, Romans through 3 John more than I ever have in the past? Am I more familiar with them, more knowledgeable of them than I ever have? Yes. Because I spent time and I spent 2014 and I focused on that. 
And so, you know, if you're going to do that, you're basically going to need to read a book a day, and some days you're reading 3 John, and it's one page, and you're done pretty quickly. And other days, you're reading the entire book of Romans, and you're setting aside a half hour or 40 minutes of time to get through the entire book of Romans in a day. But that's one way to do it, that you would focus on maybe one particular aspect of Scripture. Maybe you're going to focus on one of the Gospels, or all of the Gospels this year. Or maybe the Psalms or some other part, but you would, one way is to take a focused approach. If you think back on how you spent 2014 with Bible reading, if you don't read regularly, then setting aside 2015 to just focus on perhaps one portion would be light years beyond what's happened these last 12 months. Say, I'm going to spend the year. Would it be wasted to spend a year focused on the Psalms? I don't think so. Would it have been a waste of 12 months to, to be in the Psalms and immersed in the poetry and the, and, and, the, and the emotion of the writers of Psalms? I don't think so. But yet sometimes we put these expectations on ourselves. I've got to read through the entire Bible every year. If that's what God wants you to do, great, then do it. But you don't have to feel constrained by that. There are other ways to get into the Scriptures as well. Um, you can do a Bible reading plan. Uh, get in some of our classes, new precepts class starting up on uh, Monday nights. They are in Leviticus, so if you have trouble going through Leviticus, maybe this is your class for you to find out what are the truths of God that are in Leviticus. Our Thursday morning class, our, some of our Wednesday night classes. Spend time and find it. Get, a, get an online tool that encourages you to go through the Bible. The question is, for 2015, how valuable will be time in the Bible for you? We certainly value a lot of other things in our world, sometimes even more than the scriptures. How valuable will be your time in God's word? Because it's the only way that you will know who God is and what he requires of you. It is funny, some of the things we place value on in our world. I was reading one particular illustration that occurred on October 29th of 2012. Anyone remember what was going on in October of 2012? If you've got family in New York, you know, or New Jersey. Hurricane Sandy approached the shores and approached, uh, came across the northeastern United States. Category 2 storm became the largest Atlantic hurricane diameter-wise on record, spanning 1,100 miles. Uh, monetary damages topped $68 billion. 286 people were killed along the path of the storm. And as Hurricane Sandy bore down on New York City, almost everything shut down except at least one rogue Starbucks near Times Square. Desperate, but highly committed, perhaps addicted, Starbucks junkies fought high winds, dangerous rains, dire warnings just to get a latte or a cup of coffee. Bethany Owings, 28, walked 10 blocks with her one-year-old daughter uh, for a fix. She said, I saw on Facebook that they were open, she said. It was, not, it was scary not having Starbucks. Her neighbor and friend, 29-year-old Chris Hernandez, came along and later said, when she said they were open, I was like, pack the baby up, let's go. I don't, know, I don't know if they were all going to close. I started panicking. There's nothing else I would have gone out for. This makes my day complete. 
Alex, uh, 25, walked more than 20 blocks looking for an open Starbucks. He told reporters, it took half an hour, but I'm a Starbucks fanatic. I go four or five times a day. David Lowe, also 25, said he said he went to three closed Starbucks before learning the store was open. Lowe said, I'm really happy these guys are open. I can't get a pumpkin spice latte anywhere else. The 10-minute wait was worth it. What are you going to value in 2015? It's interesting what people will value. People will even risk their lives for going out in a storm for a coffee or a latte. What will you value in 2015? And specifically, when it comes to this book and your time, where does it rank? When it comes to not just a book, because the book is a cover and binding and pages, but the knowledge of God and who he is and his plan for you. What place will this knowledge and these words play in your life so that at the beginning of 2016, that you are closer to God, that you know him more, that you're more like Jesus, that you understand him greater, that you have a greater sense of his grace and his mercy and his holiness and his justice. I don't know how to get that except by spending time in this book so that you and I may daily and certainly at the end of this year Pray the prayer with David. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord. And may that be our prayer as well. In fact, if you'll stand, let's recite this verse together as we close out this morning. And if you would pray this with me this morning, we'll do it together. Here we go. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, the only reason we can pray that prayer is because of who you have revealed yourself to be. The only reason we can know that you are loving and not hateful is because of who you have shown yourself to be. The only reason we know that you are good and not bad is because who you have revealed yourself to be. The only reason we know that you are our redeemer is because you have came, you have come to live and show us that. Lord, it's the only reason we know. And so, Lord, we do pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart will be pleasing. But that doesn't come about by accident. It doesn't come about by magic. It doesn't come about by any other way by knowing you, knowing us, spending time with you. And so I pray for each and every person who's a part of Mount Hope. Lord, I ask that you lead us this year into your word. I ask that you lead us into greater knowledge of you. And Lord, I pray for that man and that woman who has, at the beginning of just about every year, picked up a reading plan or set out on a schedule and is frustrated and feeling guilty that they didn't follow through. Lord, I remember at the beginning of the service, we said that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Lord, you've taken away our guilt and our shame. You did not come to condemn us. So Lord, I pray that that burden will be lifted off that man and that woman today, that they would approach your word this year, just as David did, with joy. Every single description 
of your word in those verses is filled with joy, not condemnation, not guilt, not shame, but joy, adoration for your word. Lord, may that be true of us as well this year. And may we love your word because it tells us who you are and it is your gift to us in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.